And here we go. Okay, let's open um, reading from Psalm 107. We'll read the first 16 verses of Psalm 107. Alright, Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, and uh, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, but there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness, for you are truly good. Uh, And as we explore that idea this morning and uh, examine your word and what you tell us of your goodness uh, and of your grace, we recognize that we are far from good, especially when uh, in comparison to you, though we shudder even to compare, uh, even uh, even to think of our own goodness in the same thought as your own. For we are uh, far below you. Lord, reveal us, uh, reveal to us something of your goodness this morning. Uh, Help us to understand by your spirit and by faith uh, what you would have us know of yourself. Even as we long for glory, when we will see your goodness face to face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week... um, my goal was to go uh, get into, we, we, uh, sorry, not last week, three weeks ago, um, we looked at the holiness of God, and I was hoping to do holiness and goodness together, um, but I think uh, this is maybe better to attempt to do the goodness of God and the grace of God together. Um, so there, all of God's attributes are wonderful, they are wonderful together, most especially, and we thank Him and praise Him that all of His attributes are together all the time. Uh, in himself. Uh, this morning we will begin with the goodness of God. Um, I want to read several passages, and, and if I could once again have some help uh, with people looking a few passages up uh, that discuss, declare, or extol the goodness of God uh, in Scripture. The first, if someone could look up Exodus 33, verse 19. Okay, Jonathan, thank you. Uh, next, Psalm 31, uh, 3319, Jonathan. Clyde, you said Psalm 31? Sure. Okay, that's Psalm 31, 19 through 20. 
And the next one's Jeremiah 31. Jason, thank you. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 10 through 14. And then Romans 2. Dan? Thank you. And then the last one is 2 Thessalonians. Oh, sorry, Dan, that's verses 3 and 4. And then 2 Thessalonians. Okay, great. Thanks, Chris. Okay, Jonathan, if you could start us with Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So that's um, Moses seeking the glory of God, seeking to see the glory of God. And God says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you. That's the attribute that is highlighted as he passes by Moses. Uh, Clyde, Psalm 31, 19 and 20. How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have performed for those who take refuge in you before the sons of mankind. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of mankind. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. How great is your goodness. And then declaring the many works of his goodness for his people in particular. Uh, Jason, Jeremiah 31, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord. For wheat and new wine and oil, for the young of the flock and herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning to joy, will comfort them, and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. Excellent. Streaming to my goodness. Uh, and I think one translation says, uh, they shall be satisfied with my goodness. Uh, so that is a picture of glory. We will be uh, gathering before the goodness of God and be in all our longing satisfied in that goodness. Uh, a wonderful statement. Uh, Dan, Romans 2, 3 through 4. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? That's Paul uh, challenging those who would judge uh, according to the law, and declaring that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance, uh, challenging us not to despise the riches of His goodness. And I love that phrase, the riches of His goodness. All right, and then Chris, Second Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, 
so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Excellent. I think, this, um, what translation do you have, Chris? ESV. ESV. So that it says, according to the grace, I believe that the King James and New King James say, according to the good pleasure of his goodness. Um, so you see the ideas connected there already in the translation. Um, you know, that, that, uh, that concept, grace, the good pleasure of his goodness. Uh, again, extolling uh, the glory of God's goodness. So when something is good, it's exemplary, it's desirable. It, there, certain qualities it possesses cause us to desire the thing. Um, but in the goodness of God, we see that God is desirable, not because of what he possesses, but because of what he is. It's, it's again, an attribute, it's a quality, it's part of his being and his essence. So it's not a possession, it is himself. Uh, all of his attributes together display for us uh, supreme, original good. A being so good as to be called goodness itself. And it exposes all otherly creature, other creaturely goodness as derivative, borrowed, uh, or at times counterfeit. They are not actually good if they do not derive their goodness from the original, from God who is the fountain uh, and source of all goodness. I want to read Matthew Chapter 19, verse 17. 16 and 17. Now behold, one came to him, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So Jesus there uh, challenging Challenging the young man that came to him, who called him good, saying, why do you call me good? Uh, drawing our attention, our hearts, to understanding that he alone is good and truly good. Uh, and any good works must be according to his commands. Now we can think of God's goodness... And Pink defines goodness or describes it as the perfection of his nature. Pink says there is such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing can be added to it to make, uh, to make it better. So we can think of God's goodness as the attribute uh, of his per perfect being. He is a perfect being who blesses all things by giving truly good gifts and who is to be desired above every other thing. There is nothing evil in him, because he is perfectly good, and because he is good, he delights to give good gifts. Now, last time we talked about the holiness of God, uh, and we defined God's holiness as his moral perfection. And so this is very close, very similar. Uh, so I think it's important here to highlight the difference between holiness and goodness. Um, and... Tim Carr brought to my attention after last time, we kind of left it last time, along with Pink, left it mostly uh, holiness discussing the moral perfection of God. Um, but it's important to highlight that part of what is included in holiness is an essential, an essential and unchangeable separateness. He is so perfect, so morally righteous as to be uh, separate, in a, a, um, 
God's holiness keeps him at all times and eternally separate from his creatures. He is always distinct from us. There is a separateness. Not to say he does not relate to us. Not to say he does not uh, come to us and in Christ bind himself to us. But there is a, a difference. A separateness. So that's included in, in the idea of God's holiness uh, being set apart. But in his goodness, there is included an aspect of God's delight in giving of himself to his creatures. So in his goodness, there is God coming to us. There is his bestowing gifts, pouring himself out to us. So while they both contain something of God's uh, perfection, his, his moral perfection, a qualitative goodness that is opposed to any evil, there is... Uh, a difference there uh, that that each uh, each attribute kind of draw out for our for our attention. So I hope that's helpful and makes sense. We use some of the same language, but there are some uh, some differences there. Pink says that God is not only the greatest of all beings, but the best. And I think that's another. Uh, helpful distinction that we can draw out and identify. Greatness carries a sense of of quantitative power, maybe a way to think about it, uh, power and strength. While the fact that God is best communicates a supreme qualitative attribute. So his quality, his, his, uh, his perfections are good, not evil. So not only powerful and great, but good. So God's goodness is an attribute that reveals God to be the highest and the best, the most lovely, the most desirable, who delights in pouring out good gifts to those whom he loves. Now, uh, Petrus van Maastricht defines the goodness of God as uh, nothing but that perfection of his through which he can communicate himself and deserves to be desired and must be. And he says that God's goodness includes three things. One being his eternal and infinite perfection in and of himself. So we might think of that as God's intrinsic or inherent goodness. Second, it includes his faculty of communicating himself by which he wills and acts according to his goodness. Goodness. And distributes a measure of his goodness to his creatures. So we might call this his benevolent goodness. His beneficence. He delights to give good things. And third, it includes, goodness includes the relation through which he is desirable and must be desired or sought after in every way. In other words, because he is perfectly good and because he communicates that goodness to his creatures... Creatures are compelled to desire him above all things. We are compelled to seek after any goodness in him and him alone. So we might think of this as his irresistible goodness. That's my language. But when we behold the goodness of God, we are drawn to it. And all other things pale in comparison. I want to read. Van Maastricht includes a quote from Augustine, which I think is excellent. 
So this is Augustine on Psalm 135. He says, the Lord is good, but good not as the things that he made are good. He made heaven and earth and all that is in them is good. He himself is properly good, the good from which everything else is good. For he himself made all things good. He himself is good. He whom no one made. He himself is good by his own good, not by a good imparted from anywhere else. He does not need anyone by whom he might become good. But other things need him so that they might become good. I think this great quote, again, drawing our attention to the fact that any goodness we experience points to the original source of goodness being God himself. Now, Pink's chapter focuses on how God communicates his goodness to man in the good gifts that he bestows. That is the aspect of God's goodness that Pink focuses on. So when we enjoy good things in creation, we are receiving a good gift from God. Even the capacity to enjoy creation is a good gift. So Pink first discusses creation. The design of man, the structure of our bodies declaring that God, uh, God's goodness to us. And he says this of man. Abundant reason has he to say with the psalmist, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. And that my soul knoweth right well. That's Psalm 139, 14. Everything about the structure of our bodies attests to the goodness of their maker. How suited the hands to perform their allotted work. How good of the Lord to appoint sleep to refresh the wearied body. How benevolent his provision to give the eye, to the eyes lids and brows for their protection. And so we might continue indefinitely. So he gives us a taste in beautiful language of if we were to examine and consider every part of our body, we see something of God's goodness and his good gifts that he gives to his creatures. Pink also highlights that God gives to all of his creatures all that they need. He quotes Psalm 136. It says, God giveth food to all flesh, for his mercy endureth forever. In Psalm 33, 5, truly the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And then Pink also talks about the natural pleasures that have been given to creatures. He says, God has given us not only senses, but also that which gratifies them. And this reveals his goodness. What good is it to have senses, but nothing with which, uh, nothing uh, to sense with them, nothing to experience with them? He says, our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of birds Whence then this loveliness, this charm so freely diffused over the face of nature? Verily, the tender mercies of the Lord are over all his works. Psalm 145, 9. So again, these are just um, 
pictures and, and tastes of the things that God has given uh, that declare to us His goodness, His benevolence. Pink also talks about the forbearance of God shown to sinners in that while they await judgment, they receive gifts of God's goodness in common with all creatures. Despite their despising the riches of his goodness, as Paul says in Romans 2.4 that we read. And this is pink again. The goodness of God is seen in that when man transgressed the law of his creator, a dispensation of unmixed wrath did not at once commence. Well might God have deprived his fallen creatures of every blessing, every comfort, every pleasure. Instead, he ushered in a regime of a mixed nature of mercy and judgment. Something we often overlook. We, we discuss it at times that what compelled God to give us any good thing? What reason had God to save any of us? But even beyond that, what reason did God have uh, to give any good gifts to any of his creation after his law was transgressed and all of creation by man's sin was polluted? What he made good was polluted and corrupted by man's sin. And yet, in his forbearance, in his mercy, he continues to sustain all things and even to continue to pour out good gifts to his people and even to those who hate him. What a testament to his goodness and his, um, his mercy. And that's what Paul's getting at. Describing those who despise the riches of his goodness. When they do not worship him properly. Most of all, Pink highlights that God's goodness is most of all seen in giving Christ to the undeserving elect. He says, the goodness of God appeared most illustriously when he sent forth his son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Quoting there from Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Then it was that a multitude of the heavenly host praised their maker and said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Yes, in the gospel, the grace, which word in Greek conveys the idea of benevolence or goodness, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's Titus 2.11. So most especially, we see God's goodness in Christ, in giving of Christ the best gift, the best thing. It's God giving himself truly and properly himself in giving us Christ. In, in concluding the chapter, Pink says that the goodness of God is the life of the believer's trust. So a contemplation of God's goodness to us at all times and to all of his creation uh, fuels and feeds and informs and sustains our faith in him. Again, focusing on the object of our faith uh, is the right way. Uh, to grow and increase in faith by his mercy or by his by his grace. So I want to move now into chapter 13 
to a special and abundant, I think we could say a special and abundant dispensation of the goodness of God that's reserved for his elect, the, the grace of God. Pink says in, uh, toward the beginning of his chapter, Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Nay, more, it is the favor of God shown to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. Commonly, grace is, is defined or described as unmerited favor. Uh, favor from God which is uh, not earned or, or merited in any way by those who receive it. Herman Bobbing says that grace is a most glorious dispensation of God's goodness shown to those who only deserve evil. Bavink says this. Ascribed to God, grace is the voluntary, unrestrained, and unmerited favor that he shows to sinners, and that instead of the verdict of death, brings them righteousness and life. As such, it is a, it is a virtue and attribute of God, demonstrated in the sending of his Son, who is full of grace, and additionally in the bestowal of all sorts of spiritual and material benefits all of which are the gifts of grace and are themselves called grace, thus radically excluding all merit on the part of humans. So again, the great focus of grace in Scripture is the idea that it is unmerited, that it stands opposed to works. And we're seeing that in Romans in Pastor Sharp's preaching that uh, that everywhere is works of man excluded when talking about the gifts and blessing of God for his people, whether it be, uh, whether it be uh, predestination, whether it be uh, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, and glorification, all of those in the order of salutis that we talk about and, and proclaim and praise God for, all of it is by his grace, all of it is unmerited. And cannot be merited by us. Now Van Maastricht connects the grace of God more with the love of God. He calls it the benevolent and beneficent propensity of God's love. Wherein he dispenses good things freely and independently. So he sees it as the action, the, the uh, animating impulse and faculty of God's love. Particularly towards the elect. But even in that, he's using language that we just heard and discussed in the goodness of God. So they're all intertwined. The goodness, the love, uh, and the, the grace of God are all together uh, poured out in the elect uh, at once in a, a particular blessing. A particular and abundant blessing. So the grace of God is an attribute by which God freely and independently pours out a measure of his love and goodness upon those whom he has particularly chosen. Now, many theologians, Bavink and Van Maastricht included, identify uh, a measure of God's grace bestowed upon all of creation indiscriminately and without distinction, 
referred to either as universal grace or as common grace. Pink clearly disputes that theory. He he does not take that view. Um, But he doesn't get into it or debate the point in this book. But I'll read um, his opening to the chapter. He says this. Grace is a perfection of the divine character which is exercised only toward the elect. Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New is the grace of God ever mentioned in connection with mankind generally, still less with the lower orders of his creatures. In this it is distinguished from mercy, for the mercy of God is over all his works, quoting Psalm 145.9. Grace is the sole source from which flows the goodwill, love, and salvation of God unto his chosen people. Now I admit I tend to agree with Pink, and I favor the terms providence, mercy, or goodness to describe the outward blessing God shows to all mankind without distinction that is often referred to as common grace. But for our purposes in this study, we'll stick with Pink's focus on the particular grace of God toward the elect, which everyone agrees is called grace. There's no debate on that. And everyone includes, even, in, even those who identify a common or universal grace, identify something particular, something special in the grace of God shown to his people. And that's what Pink's focus is in this book. Pink identifies three characteristics of divine grace. First, he says God's grace is eternal. He says grace was planned before it was exercised, purposed before it was imparted. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's 2 Timothy 1.9. So again, connected with his uh, predestinating, predestinating grace, the eternal electing love, that blessing of grace was imparted and promised before time began. It is eternal. Secondly, Pink says it is free and unmerited. Uh, this is... Uh, As I said, the particular um, focus of many of the conversations in in theologians and in scripture, the unmerited, the freeness of God's, the gift of God's grace. It cannot be earned or purchased. As Romans 3.24 says, we are justified freely by his grace. Pink says, it is completely unmerited and unsought. And it is altogether unattracted by anything in or from or by the objects upon which it is bestowed. Grace can neither be bought, earned, nor won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. When a thing is said to be of grace, we mean that the recipient has no claim upon it, that it was in no wise due him. It comes to him as pure charity and at first unasked and undesired. So even what Christ has earned and purchased for us is not grace. It is righteousness. It's the righteousness of the law. But our share in it, our share in Christ's righteousness that is secured in in Christ's fulfilling of the covenant of works, our place in it is grace. We receive the benefits of all Christ has done by grace, 
unmerited, unearned, unpurchased. Uh, That is the grace that flows to us and binds us to Christ in his perfection, in his righteousness, in all that he has earned before God. We are brought in by grace. The third characteristic Pink identifies is that God's grace is sovereign. He exercises his grace upon whom he pleases and only upon them. Paul refers to grace as reigning in Romans 5.21 and the book of Hebrews refers to the throne of grace. This is again declaring to us the sovereignty of God in his grace. He shows mercy on whom he will have mercy The fact that God's grace proceeds only according to His sovereign will follows from the fact that it is unmerited. Pink puts it this way, Just because grace is unmerited favor, it must be exercised in a sovereign manner. The idea is that because it's not... um, There's nothing in us which causes God to exercise His grace towards us. So what causes God's grace to be poured out? What what impulse, uh, what compels Him to do so? It's nothing but His own sovereignty, His own, the good pleasure of His will. Therefore, this is pink again, Therefore does the Lord declare, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That's Exodus 33, 19. Were God to show grace to all of Adam's descendants men would at once conclude that he was righteously compelled to take them to heaven as a meet compensation for allowing the human race to fall into sin. But the great God is under no obligation to any of his creatures, least of all to those who are rebels against him. And a little bit later, Pink says, the distinguishing grace of God is seen in saving those people whom he has sovereignly singled out to be his high favorites. By distinguishing, me, we, by distinguishing, we mean that, God, that grace, excuse me, that grace discriminates, makes differences, chooses some and passes by others. And that is a fact that is declared all over Scripture. God chose Abraham from, from his generation for nothing in Abraham. God chose Noah out of an, a wicked generation, not because of righteousness in Noah, But Noah was given the favor of God. Now this characteristic of God's grace, that it is a free gift, is an offense to the natural man who is still dead in his sins and trespasses. And I love the way Pink puts this. It's a challenge to us even who are recipients of God's grace, not to despise it, but it perfectly describes the natural man coming face to face with this doctrine. Pink says, But nothing more riles the natural man and brings to the surface his innate and inveterate enmity against God than to press upon him the eternality, the freeness, and the absolute sovereignty of divine grace. That God should have formed his purpose from everlasting without in any wise consulting the creature is to abasing for the, the unbroken heart. It humbles us. 
that grace cannot be earned or won by any efforts of man is too self-emptying for self-righteousness. And that grace singles out whom it pleases to be its favored objects arouses hot protests from haughty rebels. The clay rises up against the potter and asks, Why hast thou made me thus? A lawless insurrectionist dares to call into question the justice of divine sovereignty. Pink puts that beautifully, that in every aspect and characteristic of God's grace, its eternality, its freeness, its sovereignty, the natural man recoils and rebels and rejects it. Because natural man is inherently prideful. We want something to earn. We want something to be declaring our, uh, our merits. But in the gospel, there is nothing of that. In grace, there is nothing in which we can boast. We're almost out of time, so I'll just quickly highlight where pink identifies where grace is revealed. If we are to behold the grace of God, where can we go? First and foremost, it's manifested in and by Christ, who is the only mediator of grace. It is through Christ the mediator alone that the grace of God flows to his elect. Pink also highlights that grace is proclaimed in the gospel. And as, uh, as I said, um, this is what's so offensive about the gospel. Because it's grace. Because it is unmerited favor of God that, that runs contrary to everything in the natural man. It is, it is offensive. That's what uh, Paul is describing as a stumbling block to the self-righteous Jew. That's how Pink puts it. And why? Because there is nothing whatever in it that is adapted to the gratifying of the pride of man. The gospel announces that unless we are saved by grace, we cannot be saved at all. It declares that apart from Christ, the unspeakable gift of God's grace, the state of every man is desperate, irremediable, hopeless. And finally, I think this is important to remember when we talk about God's grace and as as reformed believers we often uh, talk about the grace of God but it's important to know how we come by grace and who it is that communicates it to us pink says the third person in the godhead is the communicator of grace therefore is he denoted the spirit of grace in zechariah 12:10 God the Father is the fountain of all grace, for he purposed in himself the everlasting covenant of redemption. God the Son is the only channel of grace. The gospel is the publisher of grace. The Spirit is the bestower. He is the one who applies the gospel in saving power to the soul, quickening the elect while spiritually dead, conquering their rebellious wills, melting their hard hearts, opening their blind eyes, cleansing them from the leprosy of sin. And we'll conclude with this. Yeah, had to double check that clock. Hasn't been changed.
Okay. Thus we may say with the late G.S. Bishop, I'm not familiar with Bishop, but maybe some of you are, but Pink quotes him here and says, Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the axe of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection. And praise God. Um, Next week, as I said, we'll conclude our study. We'll be looking at the last chapter in the book, the contemplation of God, which is not one of God's attributes, but instead it's how we, to whom God reveals his attributes, should respond and and why it is important for us uh, to continually contemplate the divine perfections, the attributes of God. So let's pray uh, to conclude this morning. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, when we behold your goodness, your grace, and indeed all of your attributes, we are humbled. For we know and cannot help but see uh, our imperfections. For we are corrupt, we are fallen in sin. And even we who are redeemed and washed by your grace and by your love, we who have received your mercy... Yet there still clings to us the flesh, which is sinful and fallen and works to uh, interrupt our enjoyment of your gifts. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work in us, enabling us to mortify our sin, that we might not uh, have our enjoyment of you interrupted, but that it might be constant, ever flowing, that we might, uh, that nothing might sever the connection we have to you. For it is secure in Christ. And Lord, now as we prepare to enter into your presence in the holy place by faith and worship together, we ask that you would pour out your good gifts as you delight to do. That you would pour out your grace. That your spirit would be upon us in a mighty way. In the preaching, in our prayers, in the sacraments. Lord, in all these things, we pray that you might be uh, properly worshipped according to your word in spirit and in truth. And that you might accomplish all that you have uh, set your face to do, even from time, uh, from before time, this morning. You have planned it out, and we ask that you would do it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.